and welcome again to the Strange Brew podcast. My name's Jason Barnard and that was Status Quo running out of time from their latest Backbone LP. It's because I've got Status Quo's Andy Bown here today to talk about their tour, his career and uh, his songwriting with the band. A huge welcome, Andy. Jason, hello. Obviously, one of the main reasons we're here is to mention that the forthcoming uh, Status Quo tour you know, you've got some dates coming up, which I assume are largely uh, sold out, but you've also got some Christmas dates here for Christmas. Um, what are we on? 2022. So, um, yeah, I guess it's a great period for the group that you can kind of reconnect with uh, the core fans uh, in the live arena. Yeah. December 22. Yes. <laughs> Have you actually been able to get back together with the guys and, and start rehearsing or is that something that you'll be doing a little later? No, We'll start rehearsing in February. Probably a week, a week, 10 days, I don't know. It depends how rusty we are, you know, because there's nothing like being match fit and uh, we're nothing like it at the moment. All right, it'll be fine. I shouldn't say that. It was two years since you last yeah. last played together. It, it is exactly two years, yeah. Must be the largest break of, of time for quite a period, is it? It's my longest ever break with status quo. And I've been with the band for, I don't know, 45 years, 43 years. Yeah, yeah, it's the longest time ever, yeah. I wanted to ask you about the last Status Quo album, actually, um, covering uh, Running Out of Time first, uh, which was one of the songs that you co-wrote. Did you actually manage to get a chance to finish the tour that was supporting that album? No. We'd finished the English, uh, we finished that year, i.e., um, no, to our 19, right? Was it 19? Yeah. Yes, it's 19. We finished 19 and we were all, we were, we were really set to go to start again quite quickly, I believe, in February uh, of uh, 20 and, um, yeah. or no, April it was, sorry, April. And um, we took a view and uh, just cancelled it because uh, nobody was doing anything and uh, the promoters were uh, terrified and rightly so. And um, Francis rightly judged uh, that we'd, we stopped yeah. uh, for, this year as well, 21, because, uh, well, we got a bad feeling about it. <laughs> and it's all very well being clever and right, but we were right, and it's uh, it's still looking grim. Hopefully things will be safe for, for next year. Yeah, but uh, hopefully uh, uh, when we get through this winter, it will be, things will be different with the wonderful vaccinations. Etc. Absolutely. Do you think you'll get a chance to cover some of that material from the latest LP, given the the unfinished business? Or will that be up to Francis? Do you think, in terms of how he feels? Oh uh, yes, I think um, we uh, we ended up doing a couple of numbers from it, um, and uh, I think we will continue doing them. Yeah, they they went they went really well. They were good live. Oh yes. Now that's good to hear because you know the album was well received, and uh, you know it's a. It's a, definitely a worthwhile uh, addition to the status quo canon, and I'm shown that there's you know there's plenty of uh, plenty of life in the band yet. Oh, absolutely, yeah, there's, yeah, there's life in that one. Yeah, definitely, it's really good. I played um, "Running Out of Time" um, yesterday, and it's uh, it's good, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> it sounds like quo, doesn't it? Yeah, it, well, it does. It sounds it's a sort of a slightly new edge to it, but it, it is quo. Yeah, 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 it's good. And we'll be we'll be covering much more quo as as we we carry on in in this podcast. What I want to do now is go go back, go back to the, the early days of your career and um, ask you a little bit about the herd, which was the first group that you were in that certainly had 
chart success and um, yeah. a notable band at the time. How did the herd get together? Because there was a range of different sort of lineups as, as things coalesce. Oh, yeah, there were loads of lineups. Um, actually, I started in a band called The Preachers, which was run by Tony Chapman and um, uh, had a wonderful guitarist called Steve Carroll, who was uh, a great singer and a great uh, guitarist. And uh, we had an awful uh, crash. I was in, We went in two vans because uh, we just had to. Anyway, the van he was in uh, crashed and he uh, died. And, um, well, the arse fell out of it, really. So um, we ch- short stories, so we, uh, we changed our name to The Herd and uh, then went into about, oh, God, I don't know, 20 different lineups. Wow. Lo- loads of people. I could probably name a f- Louis Sonoma. Um, Renaissance. Yeah, Mick Underwood. Right. Uh, he used to be with the Outlaws. I was very impressed with that. And then he went on to be with Quatermass. Um, uh, right, yeah. With John Gustafsson. Uh, loads of people. People out of people. And then one day we had this uh, organist and I thought, well, that's not very good. I can do better than that. So... <laughs> So, so basically, we sacked him, and uh, my father um, guaranteed uh, the purchase of um, a Hammond. So I changed from bass to uh, keyboards for the band uh, at that time. Yeah, it's interesting about your career is that you're a, you're a man of many talents, and and you cover a quite a r- wide range <laughs> of instruments across all your bands, don't you? <laughs> yeah, I'm writing my, uh, my my memoir. It's called Master of None. <laughs> no, not at all. Did things shift in relation to when you got sort of uh, management and support from, is it Howard and Blakely? That seemed to sort of force the band into a new direction, it seems. It, uh, <laughs> dear me, this is, uh, yeah, it, it, a new du- a direction is right. Uh, they were, they managed... Um, Dave D, Dozy Beaky, Mick and Titch. Of course. A bunch of very nice lads who had, um, oh, half a dozen big hits with songs that Howard and Blakely wrote. And um, they were really a, a terrific vehicle for um, Howard and Blakely's songwriting. And um, they uh, more or less did the same with us. They completely disregarded everything that we were doing, which was drawing a crowd up to seven or eight hundred people every Monday night at the marquee. And um, they started uh, saying, right, we'll do this and do that. And, of course, we wanted wanted chart success. So we did what loads of bands did at that time. And I think think we signed a recording contract, which guaranteed us um, 1% or one penny, whichever was the least. It was a long time ago. So we did. We had a few. Hit, had uh, two or two and a half, three hits with that, and then um, we got fed up with being <laughs> being told what to do. Mm. We um, uh, left them, and um, Peter and I started writing a lot of stuff together. And um, we recorded a single called "Sunshine Cottage," and that that missed. Then uh, I guess the ass fell out of it. Really, he he went. On he was determined to go on and do something else, and I was, as you know, he uh, went to join Humble Pie, form Humble Pie. Mm. Well, yeah, it was a funny time, really. We went along to Steve Marriott's um, Chocolate Box Cottage in Epping, which was about a hundred uh, yards from um, Ronnie Lane's Chocolate Box Cottage, and um, we just sort of hung out for a couple of days, and uh, I think we, we we went stood in a couple of. Um, gigs with the small faces 
But uh, Peter later told me that um, he was sort of talking things over with Steve Marriott. And um, he took me along to see, because he really wanted me to go with him to Humble Pie. But uh, Steve apparently didn't like me, didn't take to me at all. And I didn't take to him either. But that was pretty rotten of him for Ronnie as well. Ronnie Lane, wasn't it? Mm. Not very nice. But uh, it was quite successful. But, you know, in the end, after a while, before they hit really big, Peter had had enough of that as well. So he left. He left Pie. And then subsequently did jolly well. To say the least. <laughs> mm. Looking back on that herd material, you can definitely see the the chink of your own personality in there. And then you've got the disparate range of pop styles that Howard and Blakely sort of presented on you. So, some of which stand up, certainly of its own genre, like from the underworld, which is that pop psychedelia. Uh, yeah, that was, it was very good. It was a, it was a good, um, a great uh, vision. It was just, I think it was the wrong band, really. They should have found a band that was a bit emptier. I don't. We had a lot of uh, direct. We were more. If we'd uh, banged our heads together, we'd have been much more uh, ten cc than uh, Dave D. Not Dave D. Daisy Beacon, a lovely bunch of lads. They really were, but uh, they they were happy with their lot, and uh, we weren't. Basically.
the songwriting starts to come through in some of that material songs starting to be co-written with peter like our fairy tale so you, you manage to sneak a little bit of your own material on there but obviously as b-sides and yeah. extra album material yeah they, they let us have the b-side occasionally yeah our fairy tale that was originally called um this got it so Sounds really weird, and it was originally called um, Halcyon Days. It's a word I'd uh, learnt not very long before that. My mother had a moped, and it was pale blue, and she called it Halcyon. I thought that's a good uh, name. Anyway, I digress. No, digress away. It's absolutely fascinating. Did you write much material in in that uh, herd period, either solo or with Peter? We did write quite a few. I still get. Um, the odd uh, halfpenny from uh, Latvia uh, for or places like that for um, I lied to Auntie May and uh, on my way home and uh, Sunshine Cottage uh, quite a lot of titles of course I can't remember any more than that I lied to Auntie May was that that was a song that with that title was recorded by a band called Neat Neat Change yeah is that is that one of yours yes yes uh, yeah of course it was it, it was covered yeah. It's a great song, that. That's a, quite obscure, but... Oh, really? Great, oh. That's a great song. I didn't realise it was one of yours, because that's um that's very popular now in cult circles, in a sort of um, bubblegum, pop-psych, what they call toy town-type sound in, in, a, in, in the 60s. That's a, a really um, cult track. It is? Yeah. This is, this is news to me. Neat change. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Wow. This is the way we really wanted to go. but. Um, it wasn't going to work. I mean, being we were quite we were quite green, really, and um, we didn't uh, fully realise uh, the the weight you had to have behind you to stand any chance at all. You know, it, it wasn't all about how good you are by any means. It was who was um, who was behind you, who had the clout, and they did. They had clout, Howard Blakely.
I recall seeing some of the pictures of, of you and the herd at the time, and you were kind of modelled as pinups and teen teen idols. Yeah, we were. We were. We, it was a very. It was a big teeny bopper band. Yeah, <laughs> we were the biggest. We we were the biggest working band in Europe for about eleven months. Yeah, it was really exciting times, but um, it didn't really go the way we wanted it. But uh, you know, it was great to have a bit of success. It was fabulous being uh, pulled off stage and having all your clothes torn and stuff. But, <laughs> yeah, at the time, <laughs> as you're saying, uh, Peter left in that that sort of end period of the herd as, as things moved on. And um, so, tell us about Judas Jump then. Um, what was the final nail in the coffin for the, the end lineup of the herd? And then, how did you morph off? Uh, to say that time is a bit of a blur was <laughs> it would be an understatement. It's really it's almost a blank. I can only think that um, because Andrew Steele, our drummer, the Herd's drummer, had to stop playing because he was ill. He was very worried about his health. And sure enough, 40 years later, he died of asbestosis um, in uh, Alaska. Uh I spoke to him a couple of times just before that. Anyway, yeah, he had to stop working and uh, we um, auditioned 5,000 drummers and uh, one hit me straight between the eyes and it was Henry Spinetti. Oh, wow. Exactly, yeah. Clapton's choice couldn't be bad. Anyway, um, uh, I think it must have been through him because uh, there was a big Welsh contingent in uh, Judas Jump and Alan from uh, Amen Corner and uh, the singer... Adrian Williams, he was Welsh. Henry was Welsh. And I think uh, the guitarist was half Welsh as well, Trevor, Trevor Williams. And there was Charlie Harrison. That's the complete lineup. How about that? <laughs> I got that right. But uh, we didn't really have a lot to say musically. And um, I don't think so. Uh, we were sort of struggling to play properly, really. The only one who could really play his instrument properly was Henry. So. It was a bit of a disadvantage on, on the melody front. On tracks like Beer Drinking Woman, I think that's one of yours, there's this like woodwind and, and different sounds on there. It's a, it's a band with certainly a unique sound. Well, uh, yes, I, I did try to sort of get that going because Alan played um, flute as well as sax a little bit. And um, I was trying to make it sound different, but um, I don't know. It didn't. It didn't really, uh, what can I say? I, I can't help it. I, I get done for telling the truth. I mean, the, that album that I was in the end mainly responsible for is not very good. Even of the time, it, it's not good. We were, I was worn out by then, trying to make it sound like something. I sound like the Trogs tape, don't I? <laughs> it, it just didn't work. And uh, yet some of the songs are pretty good. They just need... They need a real kick from, um, they needed something from, um, they needed a proper producer.
So how did you split your time between Judas Jump and then as a, because there were some solo releases in that period, like Tarot, which is just a great single of that time. Was some of the solo releases seen as an extra edition thing? Um, it was just, it was just, I, if it was at that time, which I guess it, it could well have been, um, I was introduced to Trevor Preston, the guy who wrote Ace of Wands. And um, uh, we wrote quite a few songs together, actually, um, some of which were recorded on later albums of mine. He was a great writer, and he'd... Uh, I was really quite in awe of him because he wrote quite a lot of the Sweeney um, series. Oh. oh, yeah, he was he was pretty good. I mean, he was in there and he was good. And uh, this, uh, he had this idea for Ace of Wands, Tarot, and um, it was accepted. And uh, he said, uh, how about this? I've got these lyrics. Do you want, do, would you mind having that? I said, of course I wouldn't mind. So I did it. And uh, the, we went, went into a studio, um, I can't remember where, and um, I believe I just played, I believe I played everything on it except the drums. If Yeah, I just did. I don't mean to sound clever. I just, in those days, you did because it wasn't, you didn't need the quality to make it sound good. People weren't used to uh, things being in time. That's what gives it an, an edge in some ways to, to some of the modern material that is just a little bit clinical in terms of the timing of the beats and the yeah. and everything yeah. placed. And it, it gives, it's, sometimes it's a bit more interesting on the ear, those variances. Yeah, I didn't uh, really think too much about that after the, um, after the series ended. Uh, in fact, I think there were three series. And then about uh, three years ago, somebody told me that Tarot was being played the last song uh, just before um, REM went on stage every night. And I thought, hey, <laughs> wow, hey, you hit the big time here. I was really impressed. And since then, it hasn't really stopped. I got um, somebody's put it on a compilation here, another compilation there, and uh, people keep mentioning it and saying how uh, what a great record it is. So um, I went in my shed and I had a look. And you know what? I've got two pristine copies. Oh. You want to buy one? Oh. I don't know if I could afford it. Oh, to you? <laughs> Fine. Jet white dove, snow black snake. Time has turned his face From the edge of mystery Where running is no race Ageless night, careless day Fate reaches out a hand To touch the edge of destiny A story with no end Tarot cards, tarot the diamond
recording tarot i could have done anything for the b-side because the b-side was just a b-side but i'd uh, i'd seen a couple of um, run-throughs of um, ace of wands and i'd fallen head over heels in love with judy lowe who played luli who is actually uh, kate beckinsale's mother ah. and um, i was totally in love with her she was just i think i met her once and i just stood there with my mouth open Look, looking like complete twat, <laughs> I'm sure. Anyway, that's what I, I wrote that um, this instrumental for the B-side called Luli Rides Again, and uh, I was so in love. It was pathetic, really. <laughs> was it unrequited in the end? or? Oh, yeah, ne- never met her again, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> totally unrequited, totally unnecessary. <laughs> give you confidence as a, a solo artist then from then because you, you do you did release a, a series of albums in that early 70s period well that was really um no, confidence no uh, listen to the quo song no that was through the the goodness of um tony chapman my manager at the time and um uh, emi records nick mobs 
and um, I did my very best. The first, my first two albums weren't terribly good. They were with GM Records. But the second two uh, solo albums, Comeback Romance, All Is Forgiven, and Good Advice, the first one uh, produced by Tom Allen and the second one by, um, by Chris Neal, they were uh, good. There's actually quite a lot of tracks on those two albums that I'm still proud of. But uh, if the tracks... I've written hundreds, hundreds of songs, uh, and the ones that I'm really proud of could be, could be counted on the fingers of three hands. I think now looking back, but there we are. That some of those albums are quite hard to get hold of now. Probably deserve a, a new sort of reissue or something like that. Well, I believe they've been reissued. Occasionally, I get uh, given a copy of um say comeback romance all is forgiven and it's um it's a pristine cd and it's it's in japanese no really so they people whether it's legal or not i don't know but uh i think they're being released occasionally but of course they've all got to be digitized haven't they that's uh, they're not on spotify Mm. so maybe they haven't officially been digitized i'll look into that you know if you promise to buy a couple of thousand (laughs) Planning my time Everything was straight In my mind Till I met you and you changed my life I didn't like your dress All the way you painted your face But you shone through and I wanted you Same. 
into um, playing on other artists' albums and, and, and session work then? I was doing session work ever since I could remember, really. Oh. I must be, because the fee was £8 a session when I started, and it was a big day. It went up to £9, and I thought that was pretty good. But I, I don't know. I think it's because um, being, as I said, master of none, you know, I, I was sort of a handy chap to have in the studio. Uh, so people did things that way then. I could get away on the bass or the or the piano or guitar or tambourine, maraca, you know, stuff like that. And people didn't seem to mind about the quality; they just felt the width, <laughs> as it were. Of course. So it was it was Blue Eyed Lady, uh, which was from the from the Hello album for Status Quo. Was was that the first time you actually played with the group? I I don't know um, what I played when I first went to record with them. The so you're probably right if you say it blue eyed lady, it was blue eyed lady. <laughs> I was pretty nervous, even though you know I knew the chaps and everything. I, I was pretty nervous. I hadn't done uh, anything really like the quo before, and uh, I was quite um, surprised. They were very happy for me to uh, <laughs> playing, playing that note. Go on, that's really good. That one there, no, those two together, yeah. No, play that for a bit. So I played it for a bit and uh, I went in the control room and they were right. It sounded right. It just felt a bit weird playing it. But um, I learned quite a lot that day. Yeah. I also earned quite a lot as well. <laughs> so that's good. Did you feel that you got on with the guys? Because sometimes you oh, know yeah, you can well, get... Yes, we, yeah, we've all, always got on. I, mean, I remember we did uh, gigs together when... Uh, the herd and uh, one particular one at the Dominion in Tottenham Court Road. It was quite a big event, and um, uh, Francis will always remember this. He was really, he was quite cheesed off because we had a roadie, and they didn't. <laughs> yeah, so we were big then for a minute.
so by the time of rocking all over the world, you, it wasn't just the occasional session. You were playing with the band much more regularly. Oh, yes. I, I did quite a lot of sessions for the band. And then, yeah, rocking, the, rocking all over the world, they uh, started recording it with Pip Williams in um, a studio in um, Sweden. I can't remember. I think it was near Gothenburg. Lovely studio. And uh, they weren't really getting anywhere. So Bob Young was asked to call me and uh, say, can you uh, come out? Instead of just putting uh, overdubbing, we'd like to have you in the studio to get a different uh, take on this stuff because we're not really getting anywhere. That was the basic uh, message. So I said, well, I don't know. I have to look in my diary. Okay. And (laughs) I was on the next plane out. And um, that was actually a really good album. And a big album as well. But, I mean, it was a good album. I really enjoyed playing it. But Rocking was uh, just one of those things. Uh, Richard found the song and he said, uh, you know, we should do this because it was um, a B-side for for, um, Credence or John Fogarty. Or was it Credence? Anyway, Fogarty wrote it. And um, Rick rightly thought it would uh, be uh, a big one. And, uh, yeah, he was right. I think Pip turned around to me and said, um, yeah, well, this is going okay. All right, um, Andy, Andrew, can you can you give an intro of some kind? <laughs> so I played that uh, the intro. I, I just played it because I'd heard, sort of heard it, and I, that was the sort of way I played, which wasn't really quite, actually. And he said, that's great. Yeah, that's good. Right, we do that. And that was it. Yeah. And sure enough, 50 years later, we started Live Aid with it. What was that like? Because basically, the first bars, the first notes were you. Yeah, I know. I'd, part of my brain um, knew that um, there were up to 150 million people watching and, and or listening. And the other half, or the other three quarters, actually, said, uh, this isn't happening, just play the bloody song. And, of course, in those days, we didn't have all the technology we've got now there was no clicks. So I had to actually count count it in as well. Now, if you've ever been really nervous and you've had to count something in, it you it's too fast. It's always too fast. But it it came in right. I was just very relaxed. I don't know why, and I thank God for that. But um, it was a pretty good experience, and we we tore it up. Oh yeah, that was really clever because our our manager at the time he was a professional to some extent, a poker player. And uh, all the managers, uh, loads of managers together um, before this event, before Live Aid, saying, you know, they were batting for their act. And um, everybody wanted to be on last, you know. You know, Elton and Paul McCartney and and Floyd, they all wanted to be on last, you know. We would go on at 11 o'clock at night. And in the end... David Walker, he got them on the line and he reeled them in and said, okay, all right, you're right, I'll give up. I'll tell you what, we'll go on first, we'll start. It's fantastic. (laughs) So they said, okay, yeah, you start, yeah. We don't mind starting. And, of course, it was, uh, well, everybody was watching the start. Yeah. Yeah, that really kicked us off again.
when did you start collaborating from a, a songwriting point of view? Because one of the, the first things that many people will recognise you for in terms of songwriting with Quo is uh, Whatever You Want. Yeah, that was a couple of albums in, I think. Yeah, after Rocking All Over the World, we recorded um, in, in Holland, lovely studio, Hep Compass, because I was sort of full t- I was full time with the band. I was still uh, a hired gun on the fiscal side, but I was full time with the band, and we recorded uh, "Can't Stand the Heat," and uh, I wrote a couple on that. I think was it over a night, right? And um, a couple of songs on that. Uh, so I, I was sort of almost straight in because I think that they re- they appreciated my writing. They they liked my my writing. I was good. I was fast and good, and I made immediate sense of what they were doing as well. So it came together very uh, quickly. And what came after that? Was that whatever you want after that? Yeah, probably, yeah, 1978, yeah. And that was with Rick, wasn't it? Well, Richard and I were in a songwriting partnership, and uh, he was actually, as was Francis at the time, doing a year out, a tax year out of the country where they could only spend... Is it 62 days or something in the country? Uh, he was, uh, Francis opted to go to Ireland and um, and Richard went to, um, I think it was called the Atlantic Hotel in Jersey. So um, he said, come over and we'll do some songwriting. So I'd done a bit of prep and I'd recorded um, a cassette of uh, whatever you want, roughly. I mean, the, the verse and the chorus. And um, I took it over and... Uh, we went through a couple of things, and he wrote uh, all the melody to uh, Your Smiling Face. Uh, that was another one we did at that particular time. And I played the cassette. I said, what do you think of this? I think this is good. He said, yeah, that's great. we do that. And he didn't hear it again until we got in the studio, where where I had to uh, pick Williams turned to me and said, uh, this is not long enough. We need a solo. So I said, uh, by that time, I was t- pretty cocky. I said, give me a couple of minutes. And I went into the ISO room <laughs> and uh, wrote the solo on piano because all the t- most of the stuff, everything I think I ever wrote for Quo is on guitar. And you'll probably be able to tell the, the chords. Uh, they're, they're off the wall for Quo in the solo. Anyway, I knocked that up in about five minutes and said, how about that? And Pip said, great, that's it, good, let's go. And uh, he stood there in the middle of the room, screaming cans on, screaming his head off and... Uh, we recorded it after about uh, well, a dozen takes. It's such an evocative opening for a track, one of the best openings for a rock track that's ever been. And then when it finally comes into the riff, it's just magic, isn't it? How, how did that build up? Well, I, that was actually on the cassette. I, right. I've still got the guitar, actually. It's a Les Paul custom that um, I swapped with Alan Lancaster for um, a, a fretless uh, Fender. And I... I played it on that. I can remember it. And I thought, that's good. I'll tune down to D. That's good. And to me, that was a throwaway intro, a total throwaway. And there you are. It's like tarot, isn't it? You think people really think, oh, that was great. And of course, at the time, I'm just, I thought, oh, I thought nothing of it, really. Amazing. It was just a way of getting into the riff, the chug. But there we are. So that worked out nicely. <laughs>
I've spoken to Bob Young before, and it, he talked about the co-album Heavy Traffic has been an album that, that really reconnected you with your fans and some of your material on there, like Blues and Rhythm. What's it like writing with Francis as opposed to Rick? Completely different. When Richard and I wrote, it would usually be, uh, it usually be the five of us. Richard, me, two guitars and a bottle of scotch. And uh, we might get something done or we might not get something done. When I write with Francis, we sit down and we work at it. It's We put the blank sheet of paper in front, we stick it up and uh, we work at it. And when it's when we've worked at it, we say up to a point, we say, right, that's it, okay. And we have um, a pepper sandwich, which he's very good at making. Mm. That's a green pepper fried pepper sandwich. And then uh, we uh, go our separate ways and um, work separately on finishing certain bits off. Then we come together again and say, yeah, that's it. And then usually we uh, put just record it uh, roughly and that's it. You know, it's then sort of set fairly much in stone because we go, we've, we we very much go for the format as well. Yes, it's quite uh, detailed working with Francis. It's, uh, it's good. Attention to detail, as they say in the US. And that song in particular, Blues and River, mentions formative influences. Were those lyrics Francis or yours or a combination? Which influences does it mention? I know it was sort of very, it was very, very. And the, the, um, da, 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 da is um, a, a very old blues um, steel guitar, Dobro uh, slide thing, which I really loved. And that really kicked it off. So and then we decided to do the story. Yes, it was it was influenced very much by uh, the blues, the blues, I guess, like like uh, most of the stuff that uh, Quo has actually done. But this was pretty obviously influenced by um, yeah. ooh, Jimmy Reed on cocaine or something like that. <laughs> Yeah. 
listen anymore I can still hear them banging on my bedroom door Is it too late to tell them, will they understand? Calm down, come on round and listen to the band We got the blues and rhythm mention as well because it's got a reissue in the last couple of years um i think it's your most recent solo album unfinished business and some of the the lead tracks there that have had quite a bit of attention like rubber gloves um that was an album that i think was recorded about a decade ago yes i believe it was recorded in 2012 yeah yeah that seems a long time ago yeah but there seemed to be a, quite a bit of a gap between that album, Unfinished Business, and the material that you released in, in the 70s. Was it just that you were understandably so busy with Quo and, and it wasn't a priority to get your solo songs out there? Well, uh, yes, absolutely busy with Quo, really busy. I mean, as you probably know, we were doing 135 shows a year, which it, to some people might not sound that much, but when every other show is in a different country, it eats up your time. So there wasn't that much time. Plus, which, of course, it's not that easy to get um, a record deal. You know, the, uh, it, recording even then was still very expensive. You didn't do it. You, well, people were starting to do it in their bedroom. And actually, some of them were having hits, but that wasn't my my thing. Um, uh, so I had to use the studio. And, of course, I wanted to use uh, Mike Paxman. And um, I was very pleased with most of it, except, of course, I made a mistake that I've made before, and that is um, the material, if I were to be critical, the material is really too varied. It's too varied. I'm sort of showing off, I think, again. For me, that was the difference between many of the latter-day qualms is that you've brought in quite a lot of different styles of songs into that album. Yeah, yeah. As I said, it's... uh, it's too varied, I think. I should, if 
I record again, which I may well do. I will. Um, I'm definitely going to bear that in mind. It will be a different vibe. I will settle on a vibe and write around that. I mean, I've actually got half a dozen songs at the moment. Mm. Do you want me to sing them to you? Oh, no, I, can't. I haven't got a guitar. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> the song Rubber Gloves, has that got a bit of a humorous edge to it as well, the lyrics? Yes, that was, yeah, that actually, that was, Mike Paxman gave me that idea. When uh, things in the studio get um, get too uh, tight, too too clever, too polished, you know, he says, oh, God, he pulled, pulled the old rubber gloves on for that. And you start messing about with it, and then you keep messing with it. You tweak this and you tweak that to get it perfect. And in the end, you've blown it. The vibe's gone from the front, from, and you would never get that mix back again because this is pre digital. You wouldn't get the mix back. Where well, surely the drums weren't that loud. You know, it, you'd never get it back. So you, you buggered it, really. <laughs> um, so the rubber gloves are. Um, is very much tongue in cheek, but yes, rubber gloves will save the day. They said, "Watch this! I'll, I'll sort this out." And actually, they don't sort it out at all. Turn it into nothing, uh, of which you could. I've been, uh, I've been guilty of, along with many. Of the fundamental riff 
your sonic architecture is your musical stip, stip. Now the clouds will save the day. And the rubber gloves Oh, the rubber gloves I'm polished through the night No stopping till we know What's absolutely right We cook up the stone And what are we And the rubber goes. And I wanted to finish the podcast with a status quo, of course, because big prominence to the forthcoming uh, uh, status quo dates and uh, burning bridges, uh, which is obviously one of your most notable tracks, but uh, an acoustic version that was uh, recorded at the Albert Hall. Firstly, just the, the writing of that track, because it's one of the songs that, that fans expect to hear live and it is a bit of an anthem now. Um, do you remember the genesis of that? That was um, with Francis. Yeah, my daughter Sophie um, was having recorder lessons at school and she came down, I remember, she came down the stairs playing uh, Darby Kelly. And um, I thought, that's really good, I know that, of course I do. So I looked it up and I found it was in public domain. So I thought, (laughs) I'll have that. So then I wrote a verse and I went uh, around Francis and uh, said, what about this? He said, great. And then he's. He, he more or less played the chorus like that, you know. And we thought, this is good. This is good. <laughs> and it went on an album. Was, it ain't complaining. It was poorly mixed. Uh, the album didn't do very well. And I don't think we got a hit from it, except maybe again and again. I'm, I'm not sure. No, not again and again. I can't remember. <sighs> anyway, it, uh, it, 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 wasn't, it didn't do very well. So, and the record company said... Uh, look, I'll give you one. Basically, they said we'll give you one more chance. And Francis said, Right, let's go with Burning Bridges, let's remix it. So he and I went in the studio and remixed it. And uh, I, I, we must take some credit for this. It sounded like a single when we'd finished. Before, it really didn't. It was a watery album track, it didn't kick ass at all. So that was another good thing amongst the litany of bad uh, things. Uh, uh, and that really goes well. Yeah, and people love it. Yeah, they love it. And it's a very, very, it's happy. Quo's done quite a lot of 
acoustic yeah. live shows over the last uh, decade. And uh, that's a song as well that fits the acoustic side, I guess, because of its origins. Absolutely. I mean, doing choir acoustically to kick off with was uh, was really a, was a real challenge. But uh, it came off very well. I mean, you wouldn't think, would you, that Down Down would work acoustically. <laughs> but I tell you, when we when we struck up, it was just, it was magic. It was just completely different. I was playing a high strung and uh, it, it was just zingy. It was really good. It was great fun to do that. Yeah, I'd like to do some more of that, but um, I'm not sure whether we will. Anyway, you said that's been recorded at Albert Hall. Yeah, there's a there's a live version which was on the Down Down and Dignified at the Albert Hall uh, live release. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that gig very well, actually. That was great. Beautiful place. It must be extra special, you know, selling out the Albert Hall, though, and, and playing there. Yes, I, I played there in several guises uh, with the, uh, the Herd. I remember, I think we supported the move there once. And uh, uh, Leslie Duncan and uh, all various people. I've done quite a few gigs there. Some just as a session guy, and it's really not. Before they changed the, they changed some kind of thing in the ceiling. I yeah, think. they've got. They've before got they those. changed that, it was it was horrible for uh, for electric. cavernous. Yeah, it was really it was a rubbish sound, but acoustic it worked perfectly. It was really good, and it it is now. I mean, it was yeah, it was a good sound. It was a good sound for us. So that was an enjoyable gig, yeah. Well, Andy, what can I say? It's been a, an absolute joy talking to you about not only status quo, but the herd and your solo material and the neat change. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, so you've got your own website, andybound.com, and uh, obviously there's the statusquo.co.uk where there's details of the uh, out outgoing spring tour and, and the Christmas dates and uh uh, just a, a huge thank you for your time. It's uh, hugely appreciated and uh, it's been a joy to talk to you this morning, or this afternoon. It's a pleasure. It's great to see you, Jason. Thank you very much. It's very kind. The pleasure's all mine. Thank you so much. Terrific. See you.
Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew Podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's ten years since I started the podcast, and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.